Welcome to the Pandemic Pedagogy Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of carrying out a conversation with Nuria Ballesteros Soria, a graduate student in the PhD program in second language acquisition here at Carnegie Mellon University. Ironically, we happen to live only a few blocks from one another. However, in the times of social distance and quarantine, our interview was virtual. Nuria is the first educator that I interviewed who teaches in a language other than English. We have both been navigating this virtual setting, not only through the mediation of the screens, but also in a second language. Stay tuned for Nuria's very poignant observations, one of which I would like to highlight for all of our listeners. The importance of changing the content to match the reality of the moment. Stay tuned. Hi, Nuria, how are you? Hello. Can you hear me well? I can hear you very well. How about you? Yep. Sounds perfect. Awesome. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to having this talk with you. And um, I will start by um, just saying your name, Nuria Ballesteros Soria, and (laughs) that I know you due to our connection at Carnegie Mellon and how pleased I was when. I remember one of our first conversations of you, your demeanor was so calming. And I thought to myself, wow, Nuria has such a way about her that is grounded, so grounded. Mm -hmm. And that is such an amazing ability to have, especially as a graduate student. I feel like a lot of graduate students when they first start, at least, you know, there it's a lot of sort of frantic energy. And mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't pick that up with you at all. Um, so so that's was my first impression and um, have nice since Yeah, and have since grown to really very much enjoy our conversations around mindfulness and teaching and empathy and um, although I'm not directly um, filled in on the type of research that you do. I look forward to, um, you know, reading more about that as you continue your journey. But mm-hmm. um, I'll start by asking you if you wouldn't mind just sort of introducing yourself and telling me how you came to the career or the profession of teaching. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I can okay. speak to that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, well, my name is Nuria. Um, I'm from Spain, um, but I've been living in the U.S. since 2014. Uh, and I've, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a teacher. So that was a personal goal of mine. Um, I, I just, I was, I always felt very passionate about teaching. Um, my BA, though, was in translation and interpreting, uh, but I soon realized that even if I enjoy, even if I enjoyed um, translating and interpreting, that wasn't really my field. Mm-hmm. So after graduation, I got a scholarship to 
do, uh, get a master's degree in the U.S. And uh, so I moved to West Virginia. I went to school in, um, in Morgantown. I went to West Virginia University and I got a degree in language teaching and linguistics. And while completing that degree, I had the opportunity to teach as a solo instructor since the beginning of the program, um, which was a two-year program. And I soon realized that that was for me. Like, I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then after I finished my master's, I went back to Spain. I continued teaching there. And then I started teaching at the University of Virginia, where I taught for two years. I really enjoyed it there. I had a really good time teaching UVA students. And, but I, I wanted to further my career. And um, that's what led me to continue my um, education, um, which I'm doing at CMU. I'm a PhD student in second language acquisition. And I also teach Spanish as part of my program. I'm the sole instructor for one course every semester. And I'm also, because of my passion about teaching, I'm also involved with the Center for Teaching, the Abrady Center, as a graduate teaching fellow. And I'm also working as a graduate teaching fellow for the Dietrich College. So those are kind of my, that's been my journey um, ever since I was a little kid to now as an adult wow. <laughs> in terms of teaching. And do you, have you, what age groups have you taught, would you say? Um, I've taught children, I've mm -hmm. taught teenagers, and now I'm teaching at the college level. And how many different languages have you taught in? <laughs> Um, I've only taught in Spanish and English. So On, only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's, um, and, um, you know, this is something that might be just particular to both you and me because there, there are not a huge number of people who've taught in both languages, but do you, do you find your teaching language to be more English or Spanish or both? Um, I would say both, um, depending on the class that I'm teaching, um, I rely on English or Spanish for specific goals. Like if I'm teaching elementary Spanish one, but I want to incorporate some mindfulness component or I want my students to talk about their emotions, I know that that may be challenging for them at that, the, 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 beginner, the beginning level. So mm -hmm. I allow them to re rely on English to talk about that. Whereas if it's an advanced course, um, I could see them working well in the target language, either be it English or Spanish. So it really depends on the course. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I was thinking about, you know, your teaching personality, not yours, but just in general, one's teaching personality. And for the first time, uh, I taught a course in English for the first time a few years back and I really had to adjust my personality because I hadn't I hadn't taught you know it's my primary language uh, I hadn't taught in English in a very very long time so it's interesting mm -hmm. how your teaching styles and personality um, get a, become affiliated with a certain language and a certain way mm -hmm. of communicating which is kind of interesting um, so how are you doing, how was last semester for you with this change in modality, with uh, having to do remote instruction? 
how did it go for you in the spring? Uh, so it went really well. Um, I actually really enjoyed it, but I really missed um, my human connections with students. Um, I feel like from a pedagogical point of view, I was kind of ready because I have, because of my uh, academic background, my teaching experience, and all, also like some, I engaged, I attended some training sessions, uh, different institutions. So I felt very comfortable teaching online, teaching remotely, I, I felt comfortable with Zoom, but I wasn't emotionally ready for this shift. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like most people were not ready for to withdraw from human interaction all of a sudden. Right. And uh, that was a big cha the biggest challenge for me, um, kind of. Because those the one-on-one the -on -one relationships with those one-on-one -on -one relationships with my students really matter to me, mm -hmm. and so one of my biggest worries when we transition transition to Zoom was how can I get that in a remote environment? How can I get the same feelings, the same connections, um, in an online distant environment? Um, so, were you able yeah. to find a way to do that? Do you have any, was there anything that was successful? Because the one-on-one -on -one is very difficult to do remotely. Right, so when, when we're teaching face-to-face, -face, I always emphasize the importance of office hours, because mm -hmm. um, that's when I really get to talk to students one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but since um, we transitioned to Zoom, I scheduled on purpose like 10 minute conversations with my students on an like on a regular basis to just check in on them individually and see how they were doing how they were feeling what their worries were um and almost like anything they wanted to share with me i was open to listening to, to listen to so that's great um, ten, so 10 minutes a week you said or 10 minutes um it varied from yeah. time, like from week to week but um i had like they could sign up for a slot and i uh -huh. told them that i wanted to talk to them on a like individually on a regular basis so some students signed up for two slots that semester um other students only signed up for one um so it varied from week to week and from student to student but i made sure that i talked to them to all of them at least once Wow, that's, that's remarkable. That consistency is important, I think. Um, Knowing yeah, that they, then, you know, that you're available. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, and then something I did um, that was different from other semesters was I collected student feedback, feedback very, very frequently. So I designed, um, I think, three or four different forms to collect their feedback anonymously. Mm -hmm. And in those uh, forms, I asked them about, uh, you know, like their workload, um, their worries, their anxieties, if they had any difficulty to establish a routine in this new environment, if they had a workspace that they felt comfortable in, um, if they had to compute, compete for computer time, things like that. Um, so I created those spaces to collect their input on that. They were, uh, they knew that those um, forms were anonymous, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I told them, if you really want to share something with me and you, you want to add your name, feel free to do so. And then I'll, I'll follow up with you individually. So I did that uh, several times, several times at different points of the semester. And that really gave me some perspective and some insight into what my students were going through mm-hmm. that helped me plan my lessons accordingly. Absolutely. And do you do, do, do you ask for similar feedback during a regular semester that you're meeting with your students in person? Um, so I, I always like to collect, to collect student feedback regularly, but um, I think the types of questions I ask um, are very different from what I asked them last semester. Like mm-hmm. in the past, I would ask students what's working well for them, what's helping them learn, what's not helping them learn, what's making them feel comfortable in my class, what's making what could be improved in that regard. But this last semester, the questions were very specific to the, the situation we were going through. Mm-hmm. And I explicitly asked them about like um, lack of workspace, computing for computer, computer time, um, family responsibilities. And of course, none of those questions were um, compulsory. They didn't have to answer them all, mm-hmm. um, but they had at least the opportunity to give their insight if they wanted to. Do you think, do you think that they, I mean, did anyone, I, I'm sure that some of the students wrote an appreciation of that, I would guess. Yes, yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also asked them, like, some of the prompts that I included in the forms um, talked about visa status and visa concerns, health concerns. Uh, so anything they wanted to share with me, they knew that they could. Um, wow. And I was surprised to see their answers. Like some of them really opened up and they brought it up in their evaluations. They, they said that they appreciated that ha- having those spaces to open up and being, um, to open up and just be themselves. Yeah. You know, I wonder if, if this will all affect our, as educators, our connection to our students moving forward, if we'll maybe still, you know, ask some of those questions. What is your living situation? You know, do you have something specific about your living situation that would make learning difficult? Those are questions that, that, you know, a a year ago would have seemed a little bit too personal, Mm -hmm. but they make complete sense within the parameters of a pandemic, teaching in a pandemic and teaching remotely. And I I think it will be interesting to see if they kind of stay around for a while. Um, So, so your, it sounds like your communication was really robust with your students. What about any activities or assessments? Did you have, did you feel a need to shift how you, how you facilitated their learning and their assignments and those sorts of things? Yeah, so um, one of the biggest projects in my course, in my Spanish class, is a cultural project where um, students get to interview a native speaker of Spanish or an advanced speaker of Spanish on a topic they like. Um, 
but I was aware that because of COVID, uh, that wasn't an option for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I was much more flexible in terms of the topics they chose and the format. I told them they could do an interview, like a Zoom interview, or they could just uh, read something online and reflect on it. So just um, being flexible with topics, with format, with deadlines also, mm -hmm. um, and with the resources needed for some of the assignments. Like um, some students um, were able to complete work online because they had access to a computer all the time and they had a stable internet. Others didn't have those resources. So I just gave them a lot of choices, a lot of options to choose from um, so they could um, decide what worked better for them. Um, and always having the learning goal in mind. So as long as the learning goal was met, I didn't, I wasn't very picky about how they got there. So. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's another component of their preparation that might be useful to continue that, you know, choose your own adventure sort of way of looking at things. What, what best suits your learning style in your current situation? As long as you, as you said, as long as you accomplish the goal, how you get there is, is, you know, up to you to determine. Right. Yeah. I, so I think being flexible with um, any sort, not just the assessments and the rubrics, but also with the, like daily classroom activities. Um, like some students were able to engage in, in class um, at our regular times. Mm -hmm. Others, um, because of their living situation, could not do that. So I um, assigned them some asynchronous tasks that they could complete on their uh, at their own pace, um, but always keeping their learning goals in mind. So um, if the learning goal was about discussing some discussion the topic with somebody else, then I would make sure to do that at a time or a date when everybody could do that. Mm -hmm. um, but if the learning goal was not about discussing or engaging actively during regular times with others, then I would give them um, other tasks and other options to still achieve that goal mm. yeah so did that take a lot did you find yourself doing more logistical work in the spring than you would normally during a normal semester and was that hard for you or was it just kind of the well, same it was more work on my part um but um i feel like as an instructor i feel very committed to doing that because I want to offer my students the best learning as experiences they can, like the, the best experiences ever. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really committed to that and I spent some of my free time on that task design process and um, trying to come, trying, just trying to come up with alternatives um, to make sure everybody was on the same page and had the same opportunities or similar opportunities. Um, well, I should say that, you know, being a graduate student, that's even more difficult because you don't have as much time and don't, you're not compensated 
for a lot of that time um, and your level of compensation is not sometimes similar to someone in, a, in a, another department who's doing less work. So I just want to say how much I appreciate that, that, that you have really, you know, taken on that role um, in a way that is very admirable. Um, and I think it's, it's, it, at the same time, I think it'll be useful for you to, to look forward to what kind of um, boundaries, you know, will you have to draw in the future? I mean, all of us, you know, I think we, we threw ourselves into this because it was a situation that no one could have predicted, but now going forward, you know, what is going, what is going to be moved about a bit such that the toll that it takes on all of our health is not so great. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I don't think that the workload I had last semester would be sustainable in the mm -hmm. long run. Mm -hmm. um, but that particular semester, because all the, 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 the experiences and the difficulties that we were experiencing, um, I was really committed to like creating, going the extra mile and creating those assignments and different options um, mm. for my students. But um, going forward, um, as you said, I really need to <laughs> uh, learn to set boundaries and to make sure that I am doing my job, but I'm not overworking myself to the point right. where like, it's just not uh, sustainable. So. Right. So that being said, um, do you, when you were redesigning, were you focused more on content? Of what you were teaching or were you focused more on the ways that you were teaching it? Um, I would say both. So in mm -hmm. terms of content, um, some of the decisions I made were about prioritizing um, the content I really wanted to cover and things that we could get by without covering. Mm -hmm. um, so I I do need to admit that we covered less content than we would we would have in a face-to-face -face course, but I thought that was important at the expense of creating a welcoming online community. So I spent a lot of time uh, in Zoom trying to create that welcoming classroom uh, climate where everybody would feel comfortable participating that took time mm -hmm. um so we didn't cover as much content but i from a, a pedagogical point of view i think it was worth it it was time well spent mm -hmm. um so i covered less um but um i always think that uh, sometimes less is more mm -hmm. and because of the COVID situation i i really prioritized the content that would be more meaningful to my students after that course, that elementary course. Mm -hmm. um, and I focused on that. I also, I also paid, paid attention to the topics that we were covering mm. um, in terms of content, because in elementary Spanish, one of the lessons was about traveling and your <laughs> ideal vacation. Oh, wow. And we were supposed <laughs> to cover that right after COVID. Uh, right after the outbreak so I was like 
well, should I really cover this recovery <laughs> here now or later? So I did make some uh, changes to the vocabulary list and I added some vocabulary that was meaningful to my students at the moment. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know more about, we learned more vocabulary about indoor activities or um, about things that we can go, we can do online as opposed to like traveling or... <laughs> Um, I don't know, visiting their relatives or, so I did make some uh, conscious changes about um, the topics and the vocabulary that we were covering, but um, yeah, that's those wow. are the decisions I made in terms of content, but my main, um, main concerns or main worries were about the how to teach and how, especially how to create um, a community in the, the new environment where um, everybody felt comfortable participating in one, one way or another. Mm. And that, so that leads me to my next question, which is, do you feel like you have been trained to create this sense of community? Was that a part of your education as an educator? How have you how have you learned to make this a priority in the ways that you structure your classes? So um, I've learned about um, classroom climate in the courses that I've taken as part of my education uh, mm -hmm. during my master's program, my PhD program. I've also read about it extensively as part of my um, involvement with the Everly Center. Um, I've attended um, workshops on how to facilitate or how to create a good class and learning environment, but I have to admit that I wasn't 100% ready to emulate that in an online environment. Mm -hmm. um, I felt before the pandemic started, I felt very comfortable um, kind of making those decisions in a face-to-face -face course. But after we transitioned to Zoom, I was like, okay, I need to sit down and think about how I can accomplish this without seeing my, being able, able to see my students face-to-face -face and without them having the opportunity to talk to each other in person. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something I tackled by reading on my own and attending workshops during my uh, free time <laughs> uh, and watching tutorials, reading a lot. And um, so it did involve some work on my part, but I feel like um, it, it was worth it that semester and it'll, it'll pay off in the long run because I don't, I think that COVID is here to stay for a long time for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm glad that I took advantage of, of all those opportunities to become a, a better or more effective online online or remote instructor. That's a, that's a really good perspective to have that, you know, the, the ways that we've had to shift our teaching practices will, will make us better educators across the board, not just mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. And that's, the investment in all of that is um, definitely worth it, but it is dif it is difficult to think about you know moving forward. How would you train an educator? 
would you train them for this sort of environment? And I, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that just yet, <laughs> but it's an interesting sort of rhetorical exercise to do. Um, so when you, when you shifted in March to the remote learning, did you feel like you said you meant, you mentioned that you went to, you've been to some webinars and you've some workshops. Do you feel that your institution was providing you what you needed for this transition? Uh, I think so. I think um, the Everton Center did a good job of offering webinars that they put together in like record time during spring break. Um, so their workshops were great. I do think that as instructors and graduate students uh, or graduate teaching assistants, we were um, overwhelmed um, mm -hmm. for several reasons, personal reasons, professional reasons. Um, health-related issues, things that came up. Um, so it was kind of um, sometimes hard to digest all of that information that we got in the trainings or in the webinars um, to apply to our courses in such a short amount of time. Um, mm -hmm. So I, yes, I think we had a lot of opportunities to train ourselves um, to be um, to get by that semester, but I think um, because of the situation, I myself, I didn't make the most of those learning opportunities. So I think now going back to the workshop materials, I, I feel like I'm at a better, better place to implement those strategies, those recommendations and become a more effective uh, online instructor. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth mentioning, of course, that, you know, we ourselves were affected by the, yeah. <laughs> by, the by the pandemic. And particularly, you know, I think you having uh, your family abroad and a part of the world that was affected very seriously, um, it was a constant, I would imagine, a constant level of, of anxiety that was sort of living within all of us. So you're mm -hmm. right that, that you could have had X number of opportunities to learn but whether or not you act you're actually able to commit to that given your own struggles um was definitely questionable right so that's a really good point mm -hmm. um and then do you so i you've told me that you have a new position as a teaching fellow with the humanities um center or humanity the our dietrich um college. humanities college and i'm interested to hear about what your educational role will be this semester and how you're going to take some of the things that you you know gathered from last semester to sort of propel you forward this semester mm -hmm. yeah so um i'll be working as a a, a Dietrich college teaching fellow and i'll be assistant with um, supporting three interdisciplinary grand challenge seminars uh, one is about environmental justice um, second one is about democracy and data, and the last one is about voting in the U.S. Um, so my role is um, to support the teaching teams um, from a pedagogical point of view. So depending, and the the my role is is constantly evolving. And mm -hmm. it differs from course to course. So some instructors need help with um, 
reviewing their rubrics and their course assignments and making sure that they align with their learning um, goals. Other instructors need help with how to facilitate um, meaningful discussions where all of their students or most of their students are actively engaged. Um, um, some other types of uh, tasks that I'll be doing may involve guiding students to appropriate university resources, um, serving as an initial point of contact for them if they need help. Um, I'm also helping another teaching team with their um, uh, international students uh, because these instructors have noticed over the years that some of their international students um, struggle to engage in the whole class discussions. Mm -hmm. So um, we've talked about how um, ways to engage them, ways they can support their linguistic and cultural uh, needs. And um, we've talked about um, how they can refer those students that may be struggling to me. And I would work with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis um, to help them succeed in the class and become active members of the learning community. Well, you are so well-suited to have mm -hmm. that position. Um, it, it sounds extremely demanding with all the different facets of learning and teaching that you'll be a part of. Mm -hmm. um, and something that it occurred to me, because I have taught in that uh, program as well in the Grand Challenges, is how wonderful your um, introduction to mindfulness might work, simply because most of the top, well, a lot of the topics, mm -hmm. the election being one of them, a lot of the topics for the Grand Challenges are so fraught with stress and anxiety and sometimes very personal um, situations that are mm -hmm. hard for students and being able to approach them from a you know a calm at least centered perspective will be really great for, really mm -hmm. great for them to be able to engage intellectually in that material so do you i mean and we're we're ending our time here but i would love for you to to share a little bit of your experience with mm -hmm. um with mindfulness and teaching that you have put together um sure so la during my first semester at CMU, it was fall 2018, um, I realized that most of my students were, were under a lot of stress. Um, so just by chatting with them at the beginning and end of class, at the end of class, um, I could tell that they were, they had a lot of things going on in their minds while they were in my class. And I was really concerned about the negative impact that that could have on their learning not just in my course but also in other classes that were taken mm -hmm. um, so i practice mindfulness in my personal life and i thought to myself that it would be worth it uh, to suggest the idea to my students and see if they were interested in if that's something that was of their interest to try and to see if it worked for them to be um, able to handle their stress better. Mm -hmm. So I brought it up to them and they all seemed on board mm -hmm. with the idea of having a mindfulness practice at the beginning of each class. Um, and I told them that unless everybody was okay with that idea, we would not do it. 
because mm -hmm. I didn't want anybody to feel uncomfortable or feel like they didn't belong uh, mm -hmm. because we were doing that. So everybody seemed on board uh, and we started doing it. Um, I used the Headspace app because mm -hmm. as graduate students, CMU graduate students, we have free access to it. And we did um, breathing meditation exercises at the beginning of each class. Um, we sat at the table, I sat at the table with them and we just meditated for two, three minutes. And that was kind of the way to set into the, the main lesson. Um, and the feedback I got from my students was very positive. They all said that they appreciated having a, a couple of minutes to themselves. Mm. And that kind of helped them be grounded and be present and be ready for what, what was coming up, um, which was related to the content that we were covering. So I feel like, again, using three minutes of class time to kind of let go of the stress that they came with um, or that they were going through and kind of getting ready for the Spanish class that they were in was really worth investing um, and was really worth using that those minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and then last semester, um, after we shifted to Zoom, I started, um, I facilitated some journaling exercises, um, sometimes at the beginning of class and other times at the end of class. Um, and I used um, Padlet for that. It's like, um, are you familiar with it? Uh, you've told me about it before, but you wanna share? Um, sure, it's like, um, you, I included a prompt in the center of that Padlet of that wall, and then students were able to add little notes um, and react to them. Uh, so some prompts I gave them were about things that um, worried them, things that made them happy during, uh, during the pandemic, people they were grateful for, um, people they wish they had closer, um, so those were kind of the prompts I gave them. I gave them a couple of minutes to think about them, to um, type their answers and share them with, in that padlet, in that wall that I created. Um, I didn't make it uh, compulsory, but most of, most of them participated. Um, and then after everybody had contributed or at least had a chance to do it, we would come back as a group and kind of share our thoughts on our own posts and other people's posts and i even i also shared my own personal experiences which i think is very important as instructors if we want to connect with our students um, so sometimes i talked about my struggles and what i was going through uh, because of the pandemic and i talked about my family being in spain and mm -hmm. Um, and I talked about how I had to move in the middle of the pandemic and <laughs> things like that. So they kind of, those kind of conversations helped me relate to them and, mm -hmm. then, and they helped them, help my students connect uh, to each other as well. 
That's, so. that's something that I think a lot of us have on our minds is the connection piece, how to create a sense of community. And then of course, you know, how to make, make some, I don't know how to even put it, but some sort of false sense of being with one another, even though we're not, you know, and in in we're together in a virtual space, but not a physical space. Right. And how, how do we try to model or create, you know, whether, like you said, it's a sort of tandem journaling or I've thought about, I think I might've told you the other day, sending my arms stretched out to the camera mm -hmm. simultaneously with the rest of the class, just to sort of like indicate that my energy is flowing forward to them and having something that we're all doing at the same time mm -hmm. physically to um, connect us in some way, but. Yeah, and then some other strategies I used that were not like mindfulness practices proper, but that I, I think still promote the idea of being, like they, they still promote empathy and a sense of belonging and of community are like um, some temperature checks. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I would ask my students at the beginning of class to mention a high and a low um, of their days uh, mm -hmm. or to represent their mood with an emoji mm -hmm. in the chat or to describe their mood in, um, in the form of a weather forecast, <laughs> something like that, if we were talking about the weather in Spanish. And so that was, th those opportunities were also good learning opportunities uh, from a language learning perspective, because we were talking about the weather and they were able to connect it with their emotions. So, um, yeah, those, those were also some activities that, that I did every now and then um just to check in on them and check in on, on their emotions and I love I really love the idea of using an emoji because they maybe in that particular instance they were practicing listening comprehension right because you were speaking if you were speaking in the target language but sometimes in, in the first couple of minutes of class it's hard to produce language for a variety of reasons and uh so using an emoji is fantastic because they're they're having to produce something that is answering the question, but it's not necessarily the target language. So that's right. really like that as well. And then that can also be a good opportunity to, to talk about how to name those emotions in the target language. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Which is something and, that uh, we don't always talk about. We don't always talk about emotions in the language classroom. Right. And sometimes students want to express that they are frustrated or that mm -hmm. they are stressed or they, that they're embarrassed and they don't know how to say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wonder too, it would be interesting from a cultural standpoint, you know, what if the use of uh, emojis is different in different situations or with different people and how that, you know, register comes into place when you're using emojis for communication, whether mm -hmm. it's also if you're using text message or an email, what the differences might be there. That's uh, such a great linguistic sort of you know, example of things that we don't often think about, but it's language, it's just communication. So yeah. I, thanks for that. I'll, I'll definitely be able to use that when I teach elementary two this semester. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, well, is there anything that I have not 
ask that you feel like you would would help understand your position or how you um, made this transition to to remote or just a, about you as an instructor and educator that you feel I wasn't I didn't ask you. Really, I think we covered uh, pretty much everything. I think the only thing I wanted to touch on was um, something that guided my uh, pedagog pedagogical approach last semester was um, the Maslow's pyramid of needs. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar. You, you, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with it. So at the bottom of that pyramid, there's this psychological fear. Then the second one is safety, protection, and security. And that is related to well-being and harm from family members and uh, all sorts of um, circumstances that we were really going through last semester mm -hmm. as a community. The next level is belongingness, esteem, and self-actualization. So I think most of my decisions were based on that sort of hierarchy because I was I was convinced that if students didn't feel safe and they were worried about their family members, their own safety, their own health, learning was learning was not likely to happen. Mm -hmm. So that's why I spent a lot of time on the bottom of that pyramid and then I moved I went uh, I took things from there. That's um brilliant I mean that's just sort of the bit the background of trauma-informed pedagogy mm -hmm. right is that if it, as you said cognitively we we can't expect our students to reach a certain level of output or engagement or or critical thinking if they're not yeah. feeling safe mm -hmm. and um, I I think it's just it's just an, another testament to what a great instructor you are a great educator that you recognizes that you recognize the need for that in the moment and we're able to tailor your your engagement with the students in such a way that that you were speaking to those needs so mm -hmm. i i think that's really wonderful um well i thank you so much for this really really awesome conversation um one of mm -hmm. i'm sure many <laughs> that you and i have had and will have over the course of our time together in, in pittsburgh and um you know i i'm considering doing a part two so checking back in sort of midway through the semester to see what other shifts we've had to make or in your case you know how it's going being a fellow mm -hmm. and being in an educational setting with so many different kind of components or pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. um so I'll, I'll reach out and see if that's something that you're interested in but in the meantime i hope that you have a good week enjoy the last sort of week before things start getting hectic <laughs> and um and i look forward to seeing you at me some too. point um for a, maybe for a, yeah maybe for a tea on my porch <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be lovely awesome all right thank you so much i'll talk to you soon yeah thank you okay. again for inviting bye. me Have a good day. bye you too bye a very big thank you to Nuria for sharing her insight and experience with us. As you no doubt gleaned from this interview, Nuria takes the curriculum and subject matter quite seriously, but not at the expense of the connection with students or their well-being. She aims to meet them where they are, 
cognitively, emotionally, and intellectually. Stay tuned for the next episode in which I interview Orion the Amazing Arrowroot, an educator and performance artist who has valuable experience to share about ways to create comfort in the learning environment while also balancing improvisation and more rigorous and specific lesson plans. Hope to see you then.